Good morning. The scripture this morning comes from Colossians 1, 15 through 23. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the word of the Lord. So our older son, Ben, called me a couple of months ago. Uh, Ben uh, had just uh, graduated in the spring from Drake University in Des Moines, and he's still living in Des Moines, uh, on purpose, I might add. Uh, I feel the need to clarify that. Uh, No, Des Moines is a great city, and uh, Ben loves it there. Uh, He's thriving, and uh, so Ben called and asked if I was willing to drive to Des Moines in mid-November to see him and go to an Iowa State game. I'm like, uh, see Ben? Yeah, sure, an Iowa State game? (laughs) Okay. Uh, There's either a Peg or a Cyclone fan in here somewhere, I don't know. Um, So then he said, it's uh, the Texas game. I'm like, oh, I'm in for that. Uh, That will make it worth it. Uh, I was born in Dallas, uh, lived there for several years growing up, Uh, I've been a Longhorn fan my whole life. They won back-to-back championships when I was a kid. Uh, So the combination of seeing my son and getting to see a Texas game said, yes, it's worth it. Uh, I will drive 500 miles in the rain uh, to get to Ames, Iowa in mid-November so that we can hang out together. And yeah, it involves some inconvenience and being gone from home for, you know, two and a half days and, you know, cost and rearranging schedules and I got a stomach bug and had to stand in line uh, in the bitter cold to get into this football stadium and uh, it was worth it though. It was worth it to, to get to hang out with my son, to watch a football game together and it was definitely worth it when Texas scored a touchdown and the band starts playing Texas fight and the guy's running you know, around with the big flag and we're all on our uh, feet and cheering and clapping and high-fiving strangers and you know, I'm giving a hook'em horn signal to anyone with burnt orange on. And, uh, but there really wasn't a lot to cheer about. Uh, the Cyclones played much better and uh, Texas went down in flames, uh, woo-hoo, which uh, the Iowa State fans were very gracious to remind us of uh, repeatedly on our way out of the stadium. Uh, but it was worth it. The, the long, boring drive and uh, the being away from home and the expense and even the taunting and jeering of uh, the, the natives in Ames, it was worth it to see my son, uh, to watch a football game together. That's what we do for things that we love, for things that matter to us, right? 
we're willing to be inconvenienced. We're willing to rearrange things. We're willing to invest ourselves in whatever it is that matters to us. That's really kind of a picture of worship. Worship is not just something that happens in church on Sunday mornings or when we're reading our Bibles and praying. If anything, we might even say worship is not so much what we do, although it is, it's really who we are. We are created for worship. We are worshipers. And worship is an expression of what matters and our response to it. And uniquely, among everything that God has made, we have the ability to acknowledge that there is a creator and respond to him. We are worshipers. So Christmas is not just about celebrating Jesus' birth. It, it is that. It's ultimately about acknowledging who Jesus is and why his birth matters. So for the next several weeks, as we head towards Christmas in this season that the church has traditionally known as Advent, a uh, preparation and anticipation, we're going to be in this passage in Colossians 1, looking at why Jesus is worthy of our adoration and why God calls us to adore him. So if you have a Bible in front of you or you can grab one of the Black Pew Bibles from the seat underneath in front of you, we're in Colossians chapter 1, and that's on page 1168 of those Black Bibles in the seat in front of you. And today we're really going to be focusing on kind of the first section of this passage that we heard read, verses 15 through 19, where Paul is really helping us understand how we are created for worship and what that looks like and how we live it out. Now, in both the Hebrew and the Greek of the Old and the New Testament, worship has this similar sense of bowing down, of kneeling, of lowering ourselves in reverence before God. For example, Psalm 95 says, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Kneeling or bowing down is a common expression of worship in the Bible, although we don't tend to kneel or bow down much in our worship, and there's reasons for that. We'll actually talk about that in coming months. I think the main thing is that it's reflecting a heart posture as much as a physical posture. What reflects worship is acknowledging that I'm in the presence of someone or something greater than me, and that changes my posture. It changes my direction. It changes how I respond. When the bride at the wedding ceremony enters at the back of the room and starts her processional, what do we do? We all stand up and we turn and look at her. If you were to be introduced to the queen, you don't just walk up and shake her hand and say, hey, queen, good to know you. Uh, you, you bow, you reverence her in some way. When you pass a superior officer in the military, you salute them. There's an acknowledgement that there is something special happening here, some, someone or something that deserves acknowledgement that's reflected in my posture because I perceived something significant. Worship, then, we could say, is an 
admiration or an esteem that overflows into action. Worship is admiration or esteem that overflows into action. When our boys were in grade school, I remember one time we were out driving around doing errands on a Saturday and saw a red Ferrari a few cars away from us. Now, I don't know about where you live, but that was not common where we lived. And so, of course, you know, the boys at that age being really interested in cars, Dad, pull up, we got to check this out, that's so awesome, and we're ooing and eyeing, and, uh, you know, I'm doing my best to try and keep up with this red Ferrari in my 96 Camry wagon. Uh, but, you know, he'd get caught at a red light, and, and we'd catch up with him, and we'd pull up, and, oh, man, look at that, and, you know, we, we turned our heads, we were impressed, we were talking about it. You see a cool car or a cool thing, and it, it makes you want to, you know, maybe take a picture or talk to the owner or ask questions because there's something unique and special about it, right? It, it changes our everyday sort of activity and and attitudes, right? Like, we, we don't get excited driving around like, oh, man, look at that rusted out 03 Hyundai. Wow! Like, no, that's nothing out of the ordinary, right? It's an admiration that acknowledges something special that overflows into some kind of response or action. So that worship, you see, is not just what we do in a religious sense when we gather together. We go to stadiums to admire people's athletic prowess. We go to concerts to hear beautiful music that, that transports us or speaks to us in some ways and, and, and on and on. We plan our weekends around hobbies and activities that interest us. We build our budgets to make room for what we admire or enjoy. Whatever it is you love, it's not even the thing that you love. You also love the people that love that thing, right? You, you want to hang around with them, and, and you get together, and, and you talk about the shared interest that you have and, and how you can't believe that more people don't understand why Weird Al Yankovic is the greatest musician of our generation. And you want more people to experience the, the greatness of, of the thing that you enjoy, and that's part of what Paul is trying to communicate here in Colossians 1, that worship is, first of all, about admiration. It's about esteem. Look at what he says about Jesus. That's the he that he's referring to. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. That's amazing if you think about it, that, that a God who is spirit himself could actually become human and have a physical form that we could see and hear and, and touch. When he says that Jesus is the image of God, the, the Greek there is icon, from which we get our word icon. It means a representation. It, it doesn't mean a copy or a reproduction. It, it means a reflection or a likeness. Jesus shows us what God is like. Jesus says, when you look at me, you have seen the Father. He is a living reproduction of what God is like. The full nature, the full being of God is shown to us in Jesus. He accurately and 
perfectly reflects what God is like. We are made in God's image, but we do not reflect God like Jesus does because Jesus has all the fullness of God in him in bodily form, the Bible says. And Paul emphasizes this going on in verse 15. He is the firstborn of all creation. Now, that is not about chronological order. Paul is not saying that Jesus is a created being, as he will make clear here in the next verse. It's talking about status and sovereignty. The the firstborn was the inheritor, the one who has all the rights, the, the one who receives what the Father has to give to him. You know, in, in the Old Testament, for example, Jacob was not the physical firstborn of Isaac, but he was the firstborn because he inherited the blessing from Isaac. And that's a little bit of what Paul is getting at here. Because he goes on to explain, for by him, by Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. Do You see, Jesus is not a created being. He is the creator. All things were created through him and for him. Not just that Jesus is the agent through which God creates all things. Jesus is the goal, the purpose of all of God's creative work. He is the one who makes everything, and everything exists for him, for his glory, for his worship, for the acknowledgement of his worth. From the farthest star to the smallest subatomic particle and all the intricacies of the way our our bodies are made and held together from the most boring school subject to to the coolest thing on the internet. Everything exists to make the glory, the beauty of Jesus Christ more fully known, including you and me. This is why we exist. You were created by God and you were created for God. And that includes thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities in heaven and on earth. All of it. Unseen supernatural powers and forces in the world, ranks of angels and, and spiritual beings. And all of them were created by Christ and all of them are ruled over by Jesus. You start to get a sense of the the glory, the majesty, the beauty of Jesus that Paul is trying to help us see here. Astronomers tell us that there are perhaps a hundred billion galaxies in the universe and perhaps a hundred billion stars in each one of those galaxies. And none of them came into existence on their own, and none of them are there by accident. Every single one of them was created by Jesus Christ to reflect his glory. Uh, My wife is a very generous person and likes to keep both Menards and our local chipmunk population happy by uh, maintaining a large supply of bird feeders uh, in our backyard, uh, including a hummingbird feeder, which I really enjoy because... uh, Hummingbirds are just amazing, aren't they? Their hearts beat 1,200 times a minute. Their wings flap 80 times a second. 
they weigh a little more than a few pennies, and they migrate 2,000 miles nonstop over the Gulf of Mexico, up into the United States, twice a year. And Jesus is the one that created that hummingbird and gave it the ability to do that. Scientists tell us that our bodies have between 50 and 70 trillion cells in them. And each one of them is like a, a complex city operating on millions of parts and interactions. But none of it operates by itself on its own. Look at what Paul goes on to say in verse 17. He is before, he is above all things, and in him all things hold together, all things cohere. One New Testament scholar says Jesus is the reason that we have a cosmos instead of chaos. He is actively sustaining all things by his work. Your lungs are breathing. Your heart is beating. Your mind is processing information because Jesus is actively sustaining you right now and every moment that you have been alive. So when we look at a beautiful sunset or a star-filled sky or the, the ocean or, or the intricacy of our own bodies or the, or the vastness of the universe, all of it, all of it is meant to point us towards the beauty, the glory of the one who created us and created us for himself to know him and, and to reflect his worth. So let me ask you, when when you see Jesus that way, does that make your head turn? Like we did in the car, seeing that red Ferrari. Wow, that is amazing. I've got to see more of that. I want to know more about that. Does it make you gasp in wonder and awe and admiration? Does it make you want to tell more people about this amazing God that you have discovered. Because that's what we do about things that we love and that grab our hearts and, and our attention. Because our hearts come to life, you see, when, when we see things that are greater and bigger and beautiful and, and awe-inspiring, we're made for that. How, how a piece of music can move us, how a, you know, a, a, a smell that brings back a memory can bring tears to our eyes, how a you know, uh, even down to the level of, uh, you know, like you, you finally get that last piece of the thousand-piece jigsaw puzzle in place, and it just drops in there, and wow, look at that. I mean, we're made for wonder and awe. And all of those things are meant to point us to the God who made us and to find our ultimate joy and fulfillment in knowing Him because you were made by Him and you were made for Him. You were made to be amazed and awed at Him and who He is and, and what He has done because our souls were made for worship. The heavens declare the glory of God, trees and stars and rocks. All of them declare the glory of God, but they have no choice in it, right? I mean, that's just what they do. You, you look at a beautiful mountainscape, and it declares the glory of God. We 
are made in the image of God. We have minds and wills and the choice to praise God and worship Him or not. That in itself is amazing, isn't it? When you think about it. How many of you uh, have dogs that, that you love? A pet? You don't, don't have to be ashamed. It's a safe space here. And how many of you, you know, just you love to come home, the dog greets you and your dog loves you and it's just, you know, it's this wonderful, oh, it's, you know, that's awesome, right? Well, it's, you're not that great, actually. I mean, dogs are made to do that, right? Unless you're a really, really bad dog owner, your dog's going to love you pretty much no matter what you do. That's kind of what they do. They don't have a lot of choice. That's just, I mean, we've, they're kind of made that way and we bred them that way. I mean, Hitler's dog thought Hitler was a great guy because he gave him, you know, pork chops or whatever. He had no awareness or concern that Hitler was a genocidal, mass-murdering tyrant. All the dog knew is, well, he pets me and he feeds me. But we are able to make moral decisions and discernment, right? We are able to make moral judgments, and we're doing it all the time, every day, about what is noble and good and pure and praiseworthy and admirable, what deserves our love. And admiring God is what we were made for. And it calls for some kind of a response from us because whatever we treasure and value, we conform our lives to it. We invest ourselves in. So if God is worthy, what is our response to Him? Because worship is admiration that overflows into action. God spoke through the prophet Isaiah about the people in Isaiah's day. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And Jesus picks that up and says the same thing about some of the people in his day. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And I think the point clearly is what we say matters, but not nearly as much as what's in our hearts and what we're actually doing with our lives. Worshiping God is not just about saying the right things, but it's about living in a way that responds to His worthiness. Because worship is admiration that overflows into action. If God really is God, then I respond in loving and trusting and obeying and following and arranging my life based on who He is. So, Paul, I think, is saying here that when we see Jesus, we see God. We're not going to know God apart from knowing Jesus. I mean, that's what Jesus himself says. Unless you have me, you do not have the Father. No one can come to the Father unless he comes through me. So, if you want to know God, if you want to know the Creator, you have to know Jesus. You, you need to listen to him. You, you need to trust and worship him. I mean, Jesus restates the first commandment. Follow me. Make me the most important thing in your life. Build your life around me, Jesus says. Is that true of us? If you want to know God, we have to listen to Jesus and make him the central thing. And 
recognize that Jesus alone is worthy of our ultimate worship. Now, we can admire and recognize the greatness of all kinds of people and all kinds of causes and all kinds of things. Issues and, and things that matter in the world and, and people that we may admire and look up to, but no angels or saints or holy people or sports stars or celebrities or causes or money or power or pleasure or even children or family or success or any of it None of it can be the basis for hope and joy and life. Paul's saying only Jesus can be that because he's the one who made you and he's the one you were made for. And everything else will destroy you if you try and put it in Jesus' place. So I think Paul is saying that means we can trust Jesus. I mean, if he created the entire universe, if, if he can manage galaxies, billions upon billions of them, and, and the intricacy of keeping every cell in my body working and everything happening, he can probably handle my business meeting next Tuesday, or what's going to happen in the election, or what's going on in the economy, or my finances, or what's going on with my kids. Do I really believe that? that I trust him because he is who he says he is, that he is worthy of my trust so that I don't have to worry about hostile powers or the direction of the country or what's going on in the world because Christ rules supreme. It's all in his hands. Paul writes another interesting statement about worship in 1 Corinthians 10. He says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. That's kind of an interesting thought, isn't it? I could do everything with a focus on Christ in, in a way that honors Him and recognizes His greatness and His goodness in all of it, washing dishes and raking that next pile of leaves that seems to never stop coming down in my yard and it never comes down at a convenient time and getting stuck in traffic and having problems at the airport and studying for a test that I'm not really excited about. I can actually worship God in those things because I see that in the middle of all of it, God is good and He is doing good and He is working out His good plans in my life. Ann Voskamp writes, Advent is more than passively waiting for the King. It's about participating in the work of the kingdom of God. When God created us, there wasn't any division between work and family and leisure and creativity and hobbies and worship, and it was just all life. And all of it, in all of it, the, the point was to love and trust and glorify God in everything that our first parents were doing. And of course, they messed it up, and Joey's going to talk about that next week. We were made to live out worship. We were made for awe and wonder. And our hearts still are wired that way and, and still respond that way. God created you with this desire, even this need, to have your heart respond to things bigger than yourself, a cause, a, a person, a, a direction, a, a purpose. Every one of us has things that we love and that we order our lives around. That's what makes us human. 
I think the question that Paul would raise for us here is, am I ordering my life around the things that matter to God? Because if I was made by God and if I'm made for God, then I really need to wrestle with the question that, what is it that matters to him? What cause, what purpose that God cares about? How is that being reflected in my life, in my priorities? Because I'm, I'm not an independent owner-operator. I'm, I'm sort of a franchise owner, right? Like, I, I have a franchise of Image of God Incorporated. But there are rules and structures for how I'm supposed to be operating this franchise. The problem is I'm not a very good franchise owner because I want to go off and offer my own specials and do my own deals and run my business the way I think I want it run. But I'm not an independent owner-operator. God has entrusted me with a, a purpose and a life that's about Him. You know, a few days ago, we celebrated Thanksgiving uh, in America, a day that is set aside to uh, eat too much food and watch a lot of football and shop for Black Friday deals. Uh, in addition to, of course, gathering together with family and friends uh, around a table full of food that's meant to be a representation of God's goodness, how abundantly good he is to us. And, and on this one day of the year, at least, we often will even verbalize things that we are thankful for, which is kind of odd on the one hand, like why do we not do that more often? Why is it just the one day a year? Because there's this constant tug of war going on in our hearts, right, between complaining and gratitude. Gratitude is not really our default response. The decision to complain or to give thanks is really rooted in the way I perceive myself. Because, see, if life is supposed to organize itself around me and what makes me happy, then when things don't go that way, I will be demanding and complaining and bitter and entitled. But Paul is trying to remind us here that that's a misplaced identity. The universe was not created and it does not operate to please me as much as I would like it to and really deserve to have it to. I mean, come on. We regularly don't get what we want. In fact, we used to sing to our kids, um, this, this is probably one of the few times I'll quote the Rolling Stones, you can't always get what you want. And that's how we taught our kids to hate the Rolling Stones. Because whenever they heard that, they didn't want to hear it. You can't always get what you want. And there's something in us that just hates that because we want it. And life should be about us. But what if we changed our perspective on our identity? And, and what if my self-identity was rooted in profound gratitude? that everything that I have is a gift from a good and a loving God who has good purposes for me. G.K. Chesterton said, thanks is the highest form of thought and gratitude is happiness doubled. What if we made it a, a habit or a practice, not just on a Thursday in November, but to regularly orient ourselves towards God in gratitude and thanksgiving. 
so that we just grow in this habit of expressing thankfulness to God all the time because He's good and we have reasons to be grateful. My grandmother used to say, count your blessings. And, you know, there are times I didn't want to hear it, but she had a lot of wisdom. Counting my blessings helps me grow in gratitude, which expands my ability to worship God and see His goodness and, and respond. Maybe you could pick up a habit of making a list every day of, say, five things that you're thankful for without repeating the list, and then you pray through that every day. We've also often had a habit in our home, as many Christians have, of saying grace, uh, offering a blessing and a, and a prayer of thanks over our meals, which my kids complain I spend way too much time at. Occupational hazard. Chesterton said, yes, that's right. We should give thanks for our food. But I say grace, he said, before the concert and the opera and before I open a book and before sketching or painting or swimming or walking or playing or dancing and grace before I put pen to paper. What if that was really our attitude? Like I, I recognize God's grace, his undeserved goodness to me, not just when I receive food, but in everything that I'm receiving from him, when it's gray and rainy on a Saturday weekend when I want to be outside doing something when I don't get what I want. That's still God's grace to me. If, if I could develop the habit to be more grateful, it would discipline me to enlarge my heart to see how worthy God is. But if Jesus is God, if he is who Paul says he is here, I don't just say thanks to him, right? I mean... If he's God and his word, for example, tells me to do something, well, he's God. I mean, if he's just a religious person, if he's just a wise man or a prophet, there are limits on what he can demand from me. But if he really is the creator, how am I going to say, no, I'm not going to do that to the God who made me? I mean, if he's God, we can't really know and follow him and have anything in our life that is off limits. That's why Paul goes on, for example, you know, later in this letter to say, get rid of sexual immorality and evil desires and greed and anger and rage and malice and slander. That's a list that deserves some reflection and self-examination. Because if he's really God and I'm going to worship him, I'm going to admire him and what he says to me in a way that overflows into action. So that any view, any belief, any conviction, any idea or hope or behavior, relationship, Jesus may change it. He, he may say, that needs to be different. You need to go over here. That needs to stop. This needs to start. Because it's all from him and it's all for him. But see, when we see the beauty of Jesus, like Paul is picturing for us here, when, when we see his glory and his goodness and his love, and his grace, and his kindness, it, it's not really a big deal to reorder our lives around someone who is that good, and that glorious, and that beautiful, and that loving. And Amelia and I were so blessed to spend uh, the last week in Italy uh, on a missionary care visit with the Satolas. Uh, the idea came up 
Uh, about a month or so ago, we realized uh, the Satolls were not here in the U.S. when, when uh, Joey and Jenna and others went to go do a missionary care trip. Uh, they, they were here in the U.S. when they went to Europe, and so now the Satolls, you know, didn't get a visit. So um, all of a sudden, we started toying around with the idea of like, well, maybe we could squeeze a visit in bef before the end of November. And so, yeah, we had to juggle some schedules around and uh, change up the preaching schedule a little and figure out what do we do with our teenage daughter while she's home and Amelia's work had to shift around some and, uh, and, and we pulled everything together and we found some tickets and, and we arranged everything and uh, you know we, we packed our bags and, and we're all excited to, to go and just try to go and encourage and bless and support and, and love them on behalf of Faith Church. So we get to the airport on uh, Tuesday a week ago, we're getting ready to fly out and uh, we get to the counter, and the lady says, okay, Mr. Schultz, you are checked in and ready to go, and Mrs. Schultz, you are not flying to Italy. I tried to check her in online. It hadn't worked. I thought, well, I don't know, it's some computer thing, and they said, your passport expires in less than three months. Yeah. Well, then it's not going to be valid for travel, because according to the rules set by the U.S. Department of whatever, your passport can't expire less than three months before your trip. Okay, so what do we do? Well, you don't fly to Italy. So we're, you know, all of a sudden, what, do we, what is going on and what do we do? And, and we've got these two big bags full of stuff to take to them and we're frantically trying to call the passport agency and the, and the airline and uh, Amelia has to call Dawn Zumbrin uh, back to come pick her back up from the airport and, and take her back. and. I'm like, well, I, I, I don't really want to go by myself, but I have to at this point. And the airline's telling us, well, it'll be a $2,500 change fee, but sure, we can make that happen if you get a passport. So Amelia goes home and she starts praying and she, and she calls her sister, who's an attorney in Chicago. Do you know any, what, can, what are there any options? What can we do? And uh, finds out there's a passport expediter in Chicago uh, who for a nice little sum will help you get a passport. Uh, in less than a day. So Amelia gets up before the crack of dawn and goes to Chicago. Meanwhile, I've flown on to Italy and, uh, you know, lugging two bags around and now I've got this layover in Paris by myself. And um, Amelia manages to get a passport in less than three hours, catch an evening flight out of Chicago that next day for less money than the original ticket we had purchased, which her sister had found uh, like a needle in a haystack. We ended up not even having to pay the passport expediter because the nice lady at the office said, well, you can just walk the paperwork down to the passport bureau and do it yourself. And Amelia's in Italy like just a day later than she was supposed to be. Wow, I mean, that, it's amazing how God did all this. All these people that were praying and working. And, and, and then we're, we get to be there for the week, um, just being with the Satols, praying for them, encouraging them, hanging out with their kids, investing in their kids' lives. Because of your generosity, and not only were Amelia and I able to go and, and invest and pour into the Satolas, but we were able to send them away for uh, a night and a day getaway, which they had not had in their time in Italy in eight years as a couple. So, you know, we're watching their kids and, you know, we're cooking and, you know, driving a stick shift in Italy at night with a GPS that's horribly mispronouncing every Italian road sign and you know, taking the kids to basketball and voice, all of it. And 
and praying with them and counseling them and meeting ministry partners and, and talking through issues and envisioning the future with them. And it, and it was just exhausting and it was awesome. And, and we fly back, uh, come back to the States, uh, jet lagged the day before our kids show up and we got a house full of kids and we're trying to pull together Thanksgiving and, you know, I'm still jet lagged and, uh, you know, hardly had time to get ready for this morning. So thank you for your uh, patience with me. And Amelia and I were lying in bed in the middle of all this and, and we just said, wow, how amazing is it that God would let us do this? That God would use us to pour encouragement and, and love and care and, and the church through us into this family in Italy as an expression of God's goodness. Absolutely, I will rearrange my schedule and lose sleep and spend money and lug bags through the airport and wash dishes and take their dog for walks and, and watch their kids and pray with them and, and run errands, whatever I can do to help them because... God is worth it, and when you see the worth and the beauty of Jesus, you want to reflect it out of you, and, and you want to be around people that love Jesus in the same way, and, and you want to love and support and care for them like you've been blessed and cared for. Just like Phil and Margaret Johnson were doing the, you know, the week that we were in Italy, they're in Indonesia. But it's not about going across an ocean, it's, it's about doing it here in Indianapolis. Because those are the same things that we can do and that you all are doing all the time, praying and caring and running errands and making copies in the office and watching kids in the nursery and doing all the thousand things that are expressions of the worth of Jesus Christ. I do this because of the esteem, the love that I have for Jesus that says any cost is more than worth it. I'm the one that's blessed to, to get to do this. Worship is admiration that overflows into action because when you see the worth of Jesus, it's all worth it. That's what we want to see this season and in our lives, that God would help us grow to be worshipers who see the value of Jesus and live in response to that. Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you for opening our eyes to see the worth of Jesus, to see his glory, his beauty, his love, his kindness, and, and as we spend more time in coming weeks in this passage in Colossians. Help us to see that more and more. Thank you for the ways that you tell us every day over and over again that everything that you have made is crying out and pointing us towards your glory and your worth. Oh, Father, help us to grow more and more to be people who see the worth of Jesus and who live lives of worship that overflows into love and trust and obedience. We pray, Jesus, in your name. Amen.